Today's episode is brought to you by Miriam Darlington's The Wise Hours, which Robert McFarlane calls a beautiful book, wise and sharp-eared as its subject. In her quest to understand the elusive nature of owls, Darlington watches and listens to the natural world and to the rhythms of her home and family, inviting readers to discover the wonders of owls alongside her while rewilding our imagination with the mystery, fragility, and magnificence of all creatures. Darlington, says Jonathan C. Slott, writes with intimacy and beauty, and Kaspar Henderson calls The Wise Hours a delight. The Wise Hours is out on February 7th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I've been hoping for and anticipating this conversation with Mariana Enriquez for many years now. After Mariana won Spain's Eralde Prize in 2019 for her latest novel, I was seeing so much intense, intriguing discussion and enthusiasm for it in the Spanish-speaking world that I reached out to her to see if she knew whether it would be translated into English, especially since we didn't have a novel of hers in English yet. In the meantime, her story collections were coming into English and creating a similar enthusiasm, and these intense and substantive discussions about what she was doing with and to the horror genre in an Argentinian context, how she was both extending and departing from Argentina's own long tradition of fantastical literature, and how she was reshaping it. Mariana often being referred to as the queen of terror, or the queen of Latin American gothic horror. We, we checked in here and there over the last several years, and I'm excited to say that the day has finally come, and I guarantee you it is well worth the wait. We talked just before New Year's, Enriquez having just returned from a long trip to Australia and just about to leave again for France to promote her work there. We connected during that island of time, Mariana in Buenos Aires, me in Portland, and shortly after, for the bonus audio archive, I had a long conversation with Mariana's translator, Megan McDowell. This is the first time I've talked to a translator for the second time once about her translation of Alejandro Zambra's Chilean poet, and now again for Mariana's novel, Our Share of Night. And really, it could have been three times, as she also translated Lina Marwane's amazing book, Seeing Red. But I wasn't yet then talking to translators when I talked with Lina. I confess that I thought this second conversation with Megan would be short and sweet, and I even said as much to Megan before we talked. Because in that first conversation, we talk about her origin story as a translator, her moving to Chile and the advantages of that, her views on translation as an activist act, among other things about her, that we weren't going to cover again in the second conversation. A conversation I imagined that would focus mainly on what attracts Megan to Mariana's writing, what their collaboration is like and what interesting challenges she was confronted with in bringing this specific work into English. And we do talk about all of these things, but the conversation was really surprising to me and sometimes revelatory, as, as I learned that Megan was translating both Zambra's book, Chilean Poet, and Mariana's book, 
at the same time during the pandemic. And I begin our conversation with how little overlap I could see in these two writers, two writers of the same generation who both engaged with the dictatorships that shaped their childhoods, but how little overlap I could see in their sensibilities and aesthetics. But Megan not only makes some interesting connections between these two books and two writers, but it also becomes a fascinating discussion about the differences between Chilean and Argentinian literatures in relation to the fantastic and in relation to realism. The ways both of these writers, Sombra and Enriquez, are participating in and yet changing and reshaping the literatures they come from. And then some really fascinating things on the level of language about written and spoken Spanish in both Chilean and Argentinian contexts. So if you subscribe to the bonus audio, all the long-form conversations with translators are really great. But this one, much like the one with Ellen Siksu's translator, Beverly B. Brahek, I think particularly adds added texture and insight to the main conversation with Mariana. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio and the many other potential benefits and rewards of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Mariana Enriquez. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Argentinian novelist, short story writer, and journalist Mariana Enriquez. Enriquez holds a degree in journalism and social communication from the National University of La Plata and has been deputy editor of the arts and culture section of the newspaper Pagina Doce who in the past have counted on their editorial staff other well-known writers from Eduardo Galeano to Rodrigo Frezon, and where Mariana has written about everything from the fantastical and anti-capitalist work of China Mieville to the power of the imagination in the work of Ursula K. Le Guin, about the fallen dreams of Stephen King to the movie Get Out to the work of Anne Carson. Most of Enriquez's work has yet to be translated into English, including her two books of nonfiction, the 2014 Alguien Camina Sobre Tu Tumba, Mis Viajes a Cementerios, which might be translated as Someone Walks on Your Grave, My Travels in Cemeteries, of which Bernardo Esquinca says, 
With a keen sense of humor, Mariana Enriquez unearths historical details, necessarily macabre, to reveal that cemeteries are much more than dust and bones. They're places charged with sensuality and mystery like life itself. As well as her 2018 nonfiction book, La Hermana Menor, Un Retrato de Silvino Ocampo, The Younger Sister, A Portrait of Silvino Ocampo, her two novelettes and first three novels also await translation, which I suspect, given the enthusiasm her work has received in the Anglophone world, is likely to happen. Mariana's second story collection, Things We Lost in the Fire, was the first of her books to arrive in English, translated by Megan McDowell, with stories from it appearing in Granta and The New Yorker, named a Best Book of the Year by the Boston Globe, Remezcla, and Words Without Borders, Helen Oyeyemi says of this collection, these spookily, clear-eyed, elementally intense stories are the business. I find myself no more able to defend myself from their advances than Enriquez's funny, brutal, bruised characters are able to defend themselves from life as it's lived. Her second book in English was her first story collection, The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, also translated by Megan McDowell, a finalist for the Ray Bradbury Prize, the Kirkus Prize, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. Of this collection, Kazuo Ishiguro said, The beautiful, horrible world of Mariana Enriquez, as glimpsed in the dangers of smoking in bed, with its disturbed adolescence, ghosts, decaying ghouls, the sad and angry homeless of modern Argentina, is the most exciting discovery I've made in fiction for some time. So it's with great pleasure to have Mariana on the show today to discuss the arrival of her most recent novel, her fourth novel, the 2019 Nuestra Parte de Noche, into English, her first novel to be translated, yet again by Megan McDowell, as Our Share of Night. Nuestra Parte de Noche won Spain's Heralde Prize in 2019, whose previous winners include Javier Marias, Roberto Bolaño, and Guadalupe Natel, publishes weekly in its starred review, calls it a masterpiece of literary horror. Paul Tremblay calls it one of the best novels of the 21st century. Alan Moore, author of Watchmen and V for Vendetta, says, Our share of night artfully employs the vocabulary of supernatural horror as the one voice capable of articulating Argentina's unspeakable history. With realism in its magic and magic in its realism, this is a magnificent accomplishment and a genuine work of power. And finally, Kelly Link warns us, Reader, beware. Our Share of Night is a novel so disquieting, so unsettling, that I could neither put it down nor read it late at night. Mariana Enriquez's short stories had already made me a fan for life. Her novel is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mariana Enriquez. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, before we talk about your novel, I wanted to talk about some elements of your writing more generally that I think distinguish you. You've expressed an interest in psychogeography, the intersection of psychology and geography, the ways geography affects the mind and affects behavior. And I suspect it's more than that for you, that it's also the way 
past behavior on the land can haunt it afterwards. For instance, you've talked about the morbid atmosphere of place in William Faulkner's work, for instance. And Argentina has a long has a long tradition of the fantastic, whether Cortazar or Ocampo or Cesar Ira or Borges. But you've talked about how Argentinian fantastical writing has, historically speaking, not looked to its own traditions and myths, but has looked elsewhere for its influences. You've mentioned Borges looking to Europe, to Icelandic literature or Norse mythology. And last year, I had Argentinian-American writer Hernan Diaz on the show, a writer whose own family's story intersects with the setting of your book in the sense that his family were leftists. They fled the dictatorship at that time, and they went to Sweden, where he spent much of his childhood before they eventually returned again to Argentina. And the main protagonists in your book are, are Argentinians of Swedish descent, but the main reason I wanted to bring him up is that he wrote a book on Borges, and half of that book was about how much Borges looked to North American literature for inspiration. He most notably looked to Walt Whitman and Edgar Allan Poe. And your writing, in contrast, feels like its morbid atmosphere sort of seeps up from the earth where it takes place. So before we talk about how and why it does this, Maybe we could start with your thoughts on the tradition that precedes you in relation to place. Why do you think the conversations it wanted to have is with literatures and mythologies and stories that originated elsewhere, that originated outside of Argentina? I think it's because Argentinians of, I would say, middle class and upper class never really felt of the land always felt as Europeans living here in the end of the world. And they were always looking for the motherland in the north. The beliefs and the stories and everything of, of the not privileged people was not part of literature. It was superstition. It was anthropology. It was whatever, uh, tourism, I don't know colorful things, but not, couldn't enter the castle of literature. And I say castle because castle is a very European kind of image. But also, like, they look to the literature in America. But, for example, Borges didn't like Raymond Chandler, for example. And why he didn't like Raymond Chandler? Because Raymond Chandler was dirty. Because Raymond Chandler talked about society and sex and dark things and you know, the underbelly of LA, for example. So he liked the really, in a way, clean stories of uh, Conan Doyle, for example, and, and stuff like that. And of course, he liked the poetry, but he had some problems with uh, with everything that was down and dirty. So he wasn't really paying attention or alive, but I think that, for example, he would really, really not like, um, I don't know, Raymond Carver or or writers like that, because to him it was uh, too, too near the, the everyday experience that he kind of didn't think that it was in the in in literature. But 
most of it is a class thing. Mm. And not even because he was so rich or or everything. It's a it's class in, in the sense of your imaginary, like your how where your mind is and your mind is there. Because other writers like uh, Casares, for example, he was from an aristocratic family. And uh, but Cesar Aira is not, for example, he he's a bit more Argentinian, though, though he uses a lot of humor. He's a lot of, uh, you know, a kind of absurd kind kind of thing. Uh, so I think that that's what it is: is the idea of class ingrained even in people that are not of that class. But that I think it's a very I really like it, but it's a very elitist. Uh, uh literature and it's not only in argentina it's the whole south america is like that it's a it's a it's a continent that is very divided that way well in a 2018 interview with david leo rice you you talked about how you often set your stories in a specific place and you said in that interview in my stories i often use a river south of buenos aires el riachuelo a polluted, ugly place that marks the border of city and suburbia and is also a symbol of corruption and greed because irresponsible industries contaminated it. Many of them are industries related to meat, and meat is a very Argentinian thing. So the river is a metaphor, but also a geographical border. And when I take that into literature, that border appears in the frontier between realism and the fantastic, that not-so-comfortable place where you recognize the setting and the words, but reality dissolves into something sinister. In that spirit, I was hoping you could talk to us about the setting of your novel in the northeastern part of Argentina, near where the country meets with Paraguay and Brazil, I was hoping maybe you could paint for us the psychogeography of this region as you see it, what that part of Argentina is like, and also talk to us about the attraction of having your story emerge from this specific place. I chose it first because I spent a lot of years in my childhood and teenage years in the region. I say first because I really like the idea of psychogeography and I really like the idea of uh, paying attention to our land and the myths of our land and the myths of our people of the but I don't want to fetishize it you know use it as a kind of uh um because that, that that's not that, that's not in the in the tradition of of literature as we were talking about so to use it as a, a fetishization, let's say, it's kind of opportunistic. So I said, okay, I'm going to use this because this is what I want, but let's look for it in my own history, in my own past. And I spent my mother and the family of my mother is from that region. That region is a region that is very selvatic, it's very, I, I wouldn't say it's jungle, that is more going to Brazil, but it's very... Uh, voluptuous nature there and is very aggressive in a way like you have the red earth uh, the, the red soil let's say and uh, you have the the waterfalls that are absolutely powerful and you have the mix of 
beliefs and religions like the 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 catholicism in that in that region also it was very specific what they did because that was a place where the where the jesuitic missions came so it was quite different what they did like they tried to do something different with the original people so you can still see the ruins of their places and they were also um taken out of the country accused of you know the jesuits were persecuted in many in many ways and they left a lot of their particular way of seeing the world and then the pagan spiritual tradition you have a bit of guarani that it's the 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 local people that are from from the region that are very mixed with the we say criollos or the, the the people that were born there and also the afro-brazilian religions because it's near brazil that are very different and you have to add to all this mixture that that's why i really wanted to to make it there because of the mixture all the immigration from northern europe czechs lithuanians swedes russians whatever so it's very strange but because you go there and uh, I, I remember going there as a child and you go to these little little small towns in the middle of the jungle where they sometimes they sell you know lo local stuff local food like things like that and it comes this woman this blonde woman that looks like a valkyrie or something and it's very it's kind of yeah it's something out of wagner and it's like what's going on that's why in in the novel it's, it could be for some readers kind of weird that the protagonist is a big swede but it's not there's even a haunted swedish cemetery in that area and it's quite a big cemetery, the Swede cemetery. And and I have family that, for example, my the sister of my grandmother was married to a German. And uh, so all that part, I look like this, like for people that are not seeing me, I'm small and pale, but very brown eyed, brown hair. Well, now white hair, but whatever. But that part of my family are all very blonde and scary looking. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I wanted that mix and the, and the, let's say, psychogeography of that mix that it's in, to be inherently pagan and inherently magical thinking and inherently mysterious. And, uh, and it's a place also that to me, I really like, um, Southern Gothic. And to me, when I go there, it really the descriptions of the writers of Southern Gothic really sound, or I, I read them and it's like, wow, it's like this place. This also reminds me of you talking about at the time Borges was writing, his fascination was with the south of Argentina, away from um, what he knew but also farther south. And you've said that things have changed a lot since he wrote. In fact, one thing you said was, the trip that can have a true sense of adventure and radical change in your life has to occur by going north, where our continent is, where Latin America is. So it makes me think that maybe like that river you sometimes cite your stories near, that this, this idea of a border an encounter, mm. an encounter with others 
with strangers. Um, it's a different impulse, I think. I mean, I think there's an encounter with strangeness and otherness and Borges going south, but it's a very different sort of impulse, it seems to me, to go north. Because he's thinking about, um, probably Hernan has, uh, knows a lot more about this than me, but when he, where, what he's thinking is about civilization and um uh, let's say I, I don't like to use the, the, the term barbarians because I don't like it, but the opposite of civilization. And when he's thinking about it, he's thinking about the writings of the makers of Argentina as a country, and he's reading them and he's in a way admiring them because they are the ones that push the border, that push the frontier in a way like the West, mm -hmm. let's say. But of course, it was in the south where they killed and the extermination there of the originary peoples were was very efficient, let's say. And so Patagonia now is a place where it has a few descendants of the original people, but most of the people are new immigrants, white new immigrants. It's a very wild looking land and it's a very open space and kind of it looks like adventurous, but it's not. It's a place of richness. It has a lot of oil. It's a place of tourism. It has a lot of people that go to the mountains or the desert or, or, or whatever. And it's a place of new immigrants. In fact, my generation must be the first generation that is called born and raised. The North, though, is where the people get darker is where things get more mixed and are more difficult to explain. It's where people come to the city, for example. People from the north come from the city to work because it's the poorer part of Argentina, the south is not. So that river that I mentioned sometimes, what cuts really is the city of Buenos Aires in half. And I live now in the kind of middle class part of the city, but I was born on the other side of the river. And the other side of the river is suburbia, but not suburbia as we understand it in Australia or America. It's post-industrial hell. <laughs> <laughs> Smells bad, they rob you, it's awful. And, and then comes the country, and then comes Patagonia. So it's like the barbarians are there around the city, yeah. like circling the city. And the north is really how Latin America looks like, you know, darker, more uh, in touch with their uh, beliefs, uh, poorer, basically, and uh, more vulnerable and more exposed in, in, in a way. Like um, nobody goes to to the place where the novel appears to do, you know, ski. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> and it's a, it's a beautiful place, but it's a very abandoned place in a way. It's weird because it's the only place in Argentina I've ever been. Is that really? Is that part of Argentina? And very briefly, a long time ago. So I don't have anything to compare it to uh, in my own life. But in an event you did with Samantha Schweblin in Norway, you oh yeah. You talk more about this region, about the mix of immigration, um, about the indigenous presence, like you said, and that you had family there, and that when you were there as a child, there was a mansion along the river, 
of people of Swedish descent. And you always wondered as a kid what they were hiding from, what they did inside that house, why, as people with so much money, they would choose this place where it rains constantly to build a luxurious house that's sort of hidden from everyone and everything. And I'm presuming this is the inspiration for the mansion in your book where hmm. the wealthy where the wealthy family lives that is part of this demonic cult. But another thing you said in this conversation with Samantha is that even though this region is part of your own family's history and part of your own childhood, you didn't want to go there for the novel. You didn't want to see it anew or research it. You wanted it to be an act of memory of returning to it only in your mind. And I guess I wanted to hear more about that because I suspect as a journalist that there might also be another temptation to go and get the details, quote unquote, correct, to refresh yourself about the sights and sounds and smells, to feel it again, to take notes, to see the creepy mansion and what it looks like to you as an adult. So talk to us about why you wanted to pres preserve it in a certain way and then explore it from that place. I think first is because I, in my mind, journalism and literature are very different. And journalism needs this, which you mentioned, all the investigation, all the, the being there. But to me, literature is an act of creation that really, to me, should not have that much help of real things. To me, it's more an act of imagination. This is not that I, you know, dismiss the literature that is more based in facts or or, or whatever. And I think journalism is literature when it's, uh, uh, you know, proposed in, in, in a certain way. But for me, because how my mind works, all that is investigation and, uh, you know, uh, recreation and, and everything, I try to avoid it go into the facts, go into the place again, because also I know as a journalist that that has no end. It has no end in a different way. The imagination has no end or memory. Memory is confusing. Imagination is confusing. Data too. But I think imagination and uh, not trying to rely so much on the facts gives you more truth. This is a very weird thing to say, but memory is something very, very tricky. When I, I mean, when you, for example, try to interview people from the area, they will tell you a thousand different things. That could be very useful, but I have my own memory with a thousand different things. I don't need that. I would need that if I wanted to do a story about the house and publish it in a magazine, but this is an awful, this is different. And also, I'm kind of worried of some kind of. I I notice it in the in 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 the last decades. I I think some need, not a real need, but you, you know a generated need of literature, to try to be very, let's say, transparent with reality, and uh, and to me it's like. Who cares? I mean, if this street has a different name or I got the name wrong or this thing happened in 1923, but really it happened in 1924, it doesn't matter. It's a novelist fiction. 
the idea of fiction having to be accurate as in adjusting to the facts to me is really I never go, I never, when I was reading, when I was growing up, I never read a book and tried to fact check a book. Never. I just took it as, you know, whatever. Maybe he's telling, he has to be telling the truth because he is telling the truth. He's telling the truth of fiction. And the truth of fiction is different than the truth of uh, of uh, journalism that really doesn't exist. It's more like, uh, you know, the most honest approach to facts that you can give the reader. So I wanted just to rely first in my memory that you can really rely on, but what was there? And also we have some tools now that there wasn't when I started writing, you can have the internet. Like the, the mansion now is a, is a hotel. Mm. It's a very luxurious hotel. And the owner of the hotel is totally convinced I was there. <laughs> and he, yeah. He even even told people in the magazine that I was there visiting and uh, with some director for making a show or something, and I never went there. I love that. Never, never. Like yeah. I, 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 I want to call him and say, like, give me two nights because it's a spectacular the place. And he said, give me two nights and I can be there because uh, it wasn't me. Yeah. Like <laughs> I hope you get to go. Yeah. Well, you yourself have been influenced greatly by writers from. England and from the United States. Yep. Clive Barker, Stephen King, David Lynch, Shirley Jackson, Stephen Graham Jones, China Mieville, many others. Yeah. Uh, that you've taken some of what they've done in their own cultural contexts and sort of transposed and rooted these sensibilities within an Argentinian context. And you've said this is largely because that while Latin America has a rich and long-standing tradition of the fantastic that there hasn't been a lot of horror historically. In, in Latin America today, you even went so far as to say, quote, the thing is that the horror tradition in Spanish is very erratic. I would go so far as to say there is no tradition, maybe Gothic literature, but horror as a popular, well-defined genre is almost non-existent. So I think, I think two elements that point to a distinctiveness in your writing is is the writing of an Argentinian fantastic rooted in in the stories and traditions of Argentina itself, but then also being part of a what feels like a new wave of uh, horror tradition or maybe a first wave of a horror tradition within Latin America, whether you're writing or writers from Mexico and Ecuador and others uh, who are now entering the horror space. But I wondered if you had any thoughts about why the horror tradition has such a long-standing history in the Anglophone world. I, I, it's not because that world has more horror in real life. No. Um, like, I wonder if it has something to do with the strain of Christianity from England and the U.S. Puritanism, if which so have informed our own relationships to the body, to purity. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like we, we have this long, deep tradition of horror. I don't know why we do, but I would imagine you've thought about it some. I thought about it some, yeah. And I thought about it why we don't. Like, for example, in the in the region that we, we were talking about, that you know, there's a very famous horror writer, Horacio Quiroga. 
that is very influenced by Jack London. And his stories about are all about that region or are set in that region, but none of them are supernatural. And it's like, man, you were living there. Why didn't you talk to the people? Why didn't you ask about the stories? Like there's a story every step you take. It's absolutely amazing. And he didn't do it. And why didn't he do it? Probably because he was reading Jack London. And he was influenced by Jack London. But he said he loved Paul, which is kind of strange. But I think that, yes, religion has a lot to do with it. Catholicism, even if you're not, a practitioner or even Argentina is a very, I, I wouldn't say it's a very Catholic country. And uh, you, you will see a lot of churches, they're all empty. We have a Pope, but he doesn't really, you know, he's more interested in politics than in God, I think. And, you know, it's not very, we don't have, not, we don't even have things like in Spain with the Easter extravaganza that they have in the South and stuff like that. But it's true that I went to a Catholic school because my mother had, for example, the idea that if this was during the dictatorship, so she, this is her thinking, that is, I admit that my mother's thinking can be a bit strange. She thought, if I take her to a public school, to a, to a state school, they're going to put in her mind like fascist thoughts. But so if I take her to a religious school, they're going to put God thoughts on her and I can deprogram her better because <laughs> God doesn't exist anyway. So, and it was like, so you are a child. Yeah, you are. She's like that. You are a child and you're exposed to, you know, this man bleeding on a cross that is kind of naked and hot. And he wasn't, and he was born of a woman and an angel and and you read the Bible and everything is absolutely crazy, but there's also, there's a voluptuousness. This is, it's an erotic religion, mm -hmm. even if it has the same repression in words. When you read about it, there's a lot about the body. There's a very essential things. The whole relationship of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, it's very different when you go, when I go, for example, to, to, a, to a country that has another tradition is very like they were friends and we are like okay come on like they were not friends <laughs> and uh, and i don't know there's something and there's something about the churches and there's something about the luxury and there's something about uh something playful and there's something uh yeah luxurious it's the the, the clothes is the the richness is the uh, in a way, uh, absolute uh, decadence of the whole thing, visually speaking. And if you go to a, to a cemetery, for example, that I'm really interested in Italy, for example, it's like, this is, this is insane. There's naked women dancing with death and, you know, the patriarch dying, you know, human size with all the family around. And you go to a cemetery in America and they're the identical graves and stuff like that. There is a lot more repression, I think. Yeah, and also is is the kind of thing of, for example, with uh, the the belief of the the belief in ghosts for for giving just one reason of why the ghost story worked a lot in in the English speaking world and not so much for us. If you think the Protestant way of you know thinking about Christianity cannot allow to have ghosts because they can't be 
the spirits of the dead. They can't be because why would they come back if they are their demons? So this is much scary. Yeah. But for us, it's different because they are the spirits of the dead. So you have the dead of the dead, the dead in Mexico, and you have and it's and it's a different kind of relationship. We are more scared, I think, of uh, I don't know of. Uh, uh, people doing bad stuff to us, as in supernatural, but bad stuff, these kind of things, but not that much of the uncanny, but, you know, of the direct attack, like the psychic attack and, and, and things like that, like people, you know, uh, doing what we call trabajos, that is like witchery stuff. So we have the the, the brujas, the witches, the, it's different. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a different um, mentality, I think. And it's been forever like that in the end a, a tradition is made of so many things that go on top of each other that you can't really tear it apart or attribute it only to one thing yes. but but I, I I do think that the voluptuousness and the decadence and the 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 relationship to the supernatural that has the Catholicism the way we we interpreted it in our cultures, it's uh has a lot less room for uncanny and and supernatural stuff because it's already there. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to share something Megan McDowell, your translator, said in a lecture. The lecture was called "Sense and Suspense: Translating Latin American Horror," because I want to hear what you have to think about it. She talks about a philosophy of Stephen King's, where he says, "The finest aspiration." is to terrorize the reader. If I can't terrify the reader, I will try to horrify them. If I can't horrify them, I'll go for the gross out. And, <laughs> and Megan disagrees with King insofar as she doesn't think there, that one of these categories is better than another. She doesn't believe in the hierarchy between terror, horror, and gross out, but she likes the categories. And she goes on to compare and contrast your work with Samantha Schweblin, who she also translates. First, she says that terror is something in our minds that we imagine and fear, whereas horror is an actual response to something that has happened or is happening. And to be grossed out is something visceral, a repulsion or disgust. And Megan says that Samantha's work operates almost entirely in the world of terror, that she's a master of suspense. She leads you through the dark with a flashlight and then lets the rest happen inside of your head. She resides in a place where consciousness meets the unconscious, sort of the realm of dreams and of fears, and she holds us in this place of unresolved tension. And Megan thinks that Samantha is working in, in the fantasy tradition of Borges, Cortazar, and Ocampo, and that her settings, unlike yours, aren't particularly Latin American, that she sort of creates environments that are almost hermetic and separate and removed. And then talking about you, she says, she thinks your work operates on all three levels. You punch us in the gut, you get us in the heart, and you gross us out. And she talks about three of your stories. The Dirty Kid, which she says is terror. Angelita Unearthed, 
which is horror, and the cart where a homeless man defecates on the street. But you don't stop there. You keep us with the smell of it, the texture of it, the look of it. I I think we can say that all three of these elements are very much in the novel that we're discussing Mm -hmm. today. The first couple hundred pages feel like a blend of horror and gross out. But there's a section in the middle that's very literally like the way she describes Samantha's work with kids inside a haunted house with a flashlight. And much of it is about the fear of what might happen, whereas parts of the book are very much the horror of what actually is happening. But I was curious how Megan's analysis strikes you, um, what you think of these Stephen King categories. Uh, Are they compelling to you? Is his... um, philosophy of terror horror and gross out something useful yeah i i kind of agree with with him the thing is that i don't think about it that much when i write i'm and it's not that clear to me when i write i never stop writing thinking okay this is terror and this is horror and this is suspense and this is no it's kind of very mixed up i think that's why megan says i operate in the three levels which is the same as to as to say she works in in the three levels or at the same time because uh, I, it's really what I do. Um, Samantha, I don't think she does gross out that much, but she does terror in a way. I remember her reading uh, in a public reading the draft of a Fever Dream, and I was actually scared. This was I don't know five in the afternoon summer in the sun uh in a rooftop and I was there was people there and I was scared like I was like stop it because I don't like how I'm feeling it was like Mulholland Drive like David Lynch like atmosphere a hundred percent I can't do that uh because uh when I start doing that in 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 a second comes politics in in a second comes violence in a second comes uh, what you would call gross out that is not only the excrements but also physical violence body horror that I love so I cannot operate in just one because it's all uh, to me is more baroque the, the, the way I, I do it maybe not not in style but yes in, in pieces of, of what I'm writing but um, I guess the first part of the novel I would say it's in mostly in suspense and, and horror by gross because at the beginning you don't know at the beginning you think it's a a, a guy and his child probably running f- away from something that is politically related in a way it is uh, but in, in a metaphorical way but yeah it operates I think in the in the horror thing until that that very with the right the very Lovecraftian kind of thing. But the second part, I really thought about it as a Stephen King thing. In a way, to me, Stephen King is not influential because, or not just because of the theories they have of what, but it was to me, the first horror writer that had a sense of place, a sense of politics, a sense of humane characters, a sense of of language that was an everyday language that, yeah, he wanted to scare me, but he wanted 
first he wanted me to believe and he wanted me to tell me this is this is my country also like i remember i remember reading carry and uh there's nothing like that in 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 argentina there's nothing like um I don't know. It, it it's a bit of a scary book to me in the sense that there wasn't uh, school shootings when he wrote it on that level. Uh, to me, it's, it's it's a novel about school shooting, basically about school violence. There's nothing like that here, and um, I reread it like recently, and I was like, okay, he has an antenna and he knows what's going on. He's know what's going on with the kids in his country. He's know what's going on with guns in his country. He knows what's going on with the uh, fanatics and, and religion in his country. He knows what's going on with poverty and with you know the the, the mother is a monster, but she's on also a single mom, and all these kind of things. This is to me that was what influenced me as a writer. So I take a lot of writers from the U.S., but to me, it's always about what they are talking about, about their people, like Toni Morrison. I love Toni Morrison. I love Beloved. It's one of my favorite books. But I remember that what did the trick to me in Beloved is when she is talking about the subjectivity of this woman that's been a slave her whole life. And this woman doesn't know if she can sing or if she likes music because every time she sang and all the music that she heard was the music that the people that own her body and her mind, let's say, uh, made her sing and listen to. And to me that I never thought about it that way. I only, I only thought about, you know, the, the physical and the, the, and the punishment and the, and the humiliation, but I never thought about how they, how they capture your subjectivity. And, and that opened my mind. I said, oh, okay, she is talking about something that she knows. She is talking about her people. That's why I like these writers, let's say, more than the writers that Borges and that generation liked, because they, they were less talking about their society, I guess, and they were more in a bubble. And um, or or in a Puritan bar, like Borges loved Hawthorne. I love Hawthorne, but you know it's a very secluded kind of thing. And uh, and and what I like is more of these messy uh, things. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I went a bit the uh, you know the, all over the place, but I think it's true what Megan says. I operate in the in the in the three levels. Well, your your first several novels were realistic novels they were gritty urban realism but then you ultimately realized that horror is a better language to express the reality you were living in first moving into horror and the supernatural in your stories and then your novels in your conversation again with samantha in norway you said that horror is ultimately your literary language because horror was your reality as a child and you mentioned how under the dictatorship you would have to ask the police for a permit to have a birthday party, how people were disappearing, concentration camps being set up, mass graves, children kidnapped and given to other families, dissidents thrown from planes while they were still alive. And your parents are telling you not to speak of anything with friends or at school about any of the people your family knew who might be involved, who could be murdered as a consequence. 
Uh, and I wondered if something else, I guess, was was part of your childhood or part of your childhood atmosphere. Because recently I watched the Argentinian film by Santiago Mitre, Argentina, ni- 1985, mm-hmm. about the trials right after the dictatorship of the highest governmental officials, which apparently was the first civil trial ever against a military dictatorship. And one where no one would help the prosecutor because everyone feared for their lives if they did. So he had to assemble a team of really young people to assist him, people who had no trial experience. And there were 709 testimonies involved in the trial that stood in for thousands of testimonies. But what seemed particularly remarkable was that it was all on television and one testimony central to the movie. And I imagine it's probably by extension was central to the imagination of Argentinians if this was on TV, but central to the movie was the testimony of, of a physicist, Adriana Calve de la Borde, who had been imprisoned when she was six and a half months pregnant. And when she went into labor they blindfold her with her hands tied behind her back and put her in the back seat of a car. And they wouldn't unblindfold her or release her hands as she gave birth sitting in the back seat next to another woman who was a collaborator with the police. And somehow she's able to get her underwear moved to the side without her hands, give birth to a baby who lay on the floor between her feet, the cord still attached. All of this she's testifying about on television. Uh, When they get to where they're going, the doctor, and I'll just say as an aside, complicit doctors is a big part of your book. The doctors who are involved in um, a lot of the horror or assisting the horror. This doctor eventually cuts the cord and makes this woman clean the floor and her stretcher naked while her baby covered in meconium is crying and while men are watching her and insulting her before she can hold her baby for the first time. I can go on and on about this, the 13 13 days without medicine, that she only was fed once every three days, that she had no clothes for a lot of this time. But in the movie, um, one of the young people assisting the prosecutor was from a a very pro-military family, who hated him for supporting this trial, for participating on the side of the prosecution. And when they heard this testimony of this woman, his mother changes her mind and supports her son's activity. But I guess I wondered if this too was, uh, were you shielded from this as a child? Was Or was this something where you would be sitting in front of the television watching or hearing about testimonies just like this. Um, and then my second question would be to return to this question of horror is these stories are horrific without any supernatural activity. You could have written horrific events in a realistic setting and it would be horrific on its own and hard to read. And I wondered about what about the supernatural aspect of horror makes it attractive as a another way into uh, writing about this time period in Argentina with the dictatorship versus writing it like your urban gritty realistic novels that you started out with. Yeah. 
No, I wasn't shielded at all. On the contrary, I do remember my father. I can't. I don't remember that I saw the movie. I don't remember that testimony as I remember it from a book because there was a book also that's called Nunca Mas. There's never again. They let me read it. All the testimonies were there. I always say that that's my first real horror book, and it was. It's mostly the testimonies, and then where the the concentration camps were, and you know. And uh, it's a very, like even a very legal uh, language and very, to me, very technical and very similar to medicine. That's the point. My mother is a doctor too. But also in all these things, there's always doctors, not only with the women that were giving birth, but with the people that were being tortured because they didn't want them to die. They want them to keep them alive so they could still speak. And obviously, I thought about it like maybe two years after writing the novel, but in, in the novel, there's the medium, Juan, that has to speak and has to be kept alive and in a way is tortured. And there's this doctor that keeps him alive, probably against his will also at some point of course he wants to leave but he i don't i'm not sure that he wants to live like that he's a very very dark character because of that he's a, he has a death wish and he's near death too but this this idea of the doctor that is um trying to keep you alive not not curing you is not the positive doctor but you know like a doctor death kind of thing it's it was um all over that period. And also I had the language because my mother is a doctor, so I had the books and I was kind of obsessed with it. But I, I don't remember that testimony in particular, but I do remember in the radio, my father used to come back at night and part of the trial was on the radio. And I remember a testimony of a man that was saying that the torture was like they were picking the, how do you say the, the part of the of the foot where you used to step, like the the, the back, the heel of the of the, the heel, yeah, the heel of the foot. Yeah, they started to peel it, and I remember my clearly my father looking at me. I was ten, maybe something like that, eleven. My father looking at me and saying, "You see, you see how mean they were." Like there was no concept for any child, I think, of, of shielding us from this. Because this was the everyday life. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to shield. Uh, you, you, you were going to know anyway. And also you're going to know because in school, for example, the rumor in school, we would get together like three or four girls. This is a, a vision that appears a lot in many of my stories. Three or four girls like talking, blah, 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 blah. And secretly thinking, okay, do you think that girl is the child of her parents or was she robbed? And she's really from a family of militants, of activists, and she's with a military family now. So there was this uncanny thing of, you know, almost uh, uh, the definition, the Freudian definition of sinister is this person is familiar, but is not who she thinks, with what, what she thinks she is and what we think she is. So she's like a strange form of life between us. Of course, I could describe all of these things in a realistic way, 
and it would be horrific. But there's two things. First, there's a lot of it to a point where if you live here, you're numb to it. I'm not, I like, I listen to you telling the, the story of this woman giving birth like that. And one part of my brain recognizes it as horrific. And one part of my brain recognizes it as, okay, it was another one of the women that gave birth in this situation. Like it's absolutely normalized in a way. So I didn't want to join the many, many narratives of the dictatorship that are very realistic and reproduce this, but I wanted to have my voice. Like I lived through it as a child, which is not the same as being a direct victim, which is not the same as being an activist. And of course, it's not the same as being someone that suffered it in their body physically through torture or being captive. But you live through it too, and you're traumatized too. But what is my language? to talk about it. This My language is not realism. I wasn't there in a realistic way. I was there in my imagination. And my imagination those days were, was full of reading fantastic fiction, dark fiction and horror. And so it became the language to talk about this, my language to talk about this. There's also the children of the disappeared that are about my age, a bit older maybe, or younger, some of my age, late forties. Some use humor, some use a uh, very Beckettian kind of absurd because there's something very absurd about it too. But very few use uh, realism because there's something about the experience when you go through it as a child that is not entirely real, that has an oneric aspect to it. Mm -hmm. The secrecy, the not knowing what's going on, the kind of playful thing. Also, this is the 80s. So you have like the slasher movies and this, and it's all a mix. So you have Freddy and Videla. Huh. And, you know, when you're seven, it's not that different. No. So there was some, some kind of decision as to talk about it and write about it in a way that wasn't the usual numberness kind of atmosphere of talking about these horrific things one and twice and three times and four times and, four, and it's always the same and it's kind of, you don't want to hear it anymore. But if I think about it in horror terms, Ghosts in Spanish is aparecido. That is the opposite of desaparecido, of disappeared. So even in the language, there's something there going on. And also the secrecy of the dictatorship helped a lot with the sinister and like the Freudian sinister, like the house next door could be a concentration camp because in fact it was sometimes. They used to, they, they used to places like that. So yes, and... My first two novels really are very influenced by, um, I really liked, this is kind of weird, but I really like the writers of um, of the AIDS era, like, I don't know, Kathy Aker, Brett Easton Ellis, Dennis Cooper, that was huge for me, also comes again, uh, the body also comes again, uh, disease. So my, my first novel is about a gay love story with a bit of Hellraiser, 
but nobody thought about it. Like I, was, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> and um, no, nobody saw the Hellraiser reference and the Clive Barker reference and the gay. Like it's, to me, it's a very queer novel. And the second, uh, a, a bit too, is very influenced by Dennis Cooper. It's a boy that you know is uh, abused by his father and tries to run away from home. But yeah, they are realistic. But they are realistic, but they are horrifying in a way. Mm. And to me, it wasn't enough. But also, I didn't have still very clear which was the language of horror that I have to use to talk about certain things. I was playing around. My first novel came when I was 21, and the second came 10 years later while I was, you know, trying to make a living. So... I think I started to to write horror when I understood this that that I just told you that it was the language that I had to use as my own language to escape from the realistic uh, kind of sameness that comes to every horrifying thing has a sameness. It even happens to me with other horrifying things, things let's say Vietnam narratives. I think it's all the same. It's all. It's very. It's very, very similar. You need a shock again, and I'm not scared of. Uh, this is the genre I chose, and the genre I chose is shocking. Its purpose is to shook you up, is to wake you up, is to say hello. Let's go back to the horror, okay? This is not an everyday thing. I think a horror in in that way is very moral. Let's say it's yeah. not. It's it's trying not to you know, trying not to normalize things, but but to tell you in your face, like look how horrific this is, and give it back the horrific essence of what happened. Could you, in the spirit of that, could you introduce us to the order, the cult of black magic and unspeakable violence that is central to the book? Who are these people? What do they believe in, and what are they hoping for? Is if you were to introduce us to this um, global network that we're intersecting with here in Argentina? Of course, they are awfully rich, and they are not uh, necessarily uh, related to politics, but in a way they are. They are related to power in general. So whatever the politics are, they are near them. They are uh, transnational let's say. Uh, in my novel, in, in particular, they are British and Argentinian. There's a strong link between, especially in the first decades of the of the 20th century, between Britain and, and Argentina. Like, uh, I don't know, Britain made a, the, the trains, for example, and we, we were their commercial. Commercially, we, we were like the First, we were like a colony, not officially, let's say, and uh, easily than <laughs> a colony. We didn't have to send officers; <laughs> we did the job. But uh, I, I thought about it this way: if you have everything, if you have all the riches, if you have all the contacts, if you can live the better life, if you, if you live in what I call, in a way, the country of the rich, that it's the same everywhere. You go to the poorest country in the world and you go to the elite that is rich and they live exactly the same as the rich in in another place. But if you have that, what would you want to make it last forever? You would want it to, to live forever. 
but you would want to live forever not in like the silly reincarnation i hate the reincarnation theories it's like why I'm, i don't want to be a dog you know i want to have my mind in this body or or in another body so they practice um well it's, it's basically ceremonial and chaos magic what what, what, they, what they practice i based it in golden dawn the order of um of course mcgregor mathers and alistair crowley and etc and um, they are looking for a god that could grant them this and this god is an amorphous god it's uh doesn't have a shape it's a darkness and it's a darkness that is very confusing like they hear it speak they try to write down what it says but there's not a con complete agreement it, it's in a way like the bible no? there's many conflicting stories there going on and it appears as darkness when it's uh, summoned by the medium and it eats you basically it's a big mouth and uh, it's very voracious like they are you know they, they want more and more and more and their god is like them when you were in conversation with Lena Marwane, who, who's also been on the show, you, you talked about how rich people are like a country to themselves, like you've just mentioned. And in a way, it feels like this order and its cosmology is self-contained and hermetic in many ways, in a bubble. But it's also got this sort of vampiric, predatory or parasitic relationship with everyone else. Um, we know things on the margins. This isn't really central to the book we get these details in passing we we know that they're landowners that during Peron there they were worried that their land would get expropriated and because of this they they marginally improved the working conditions but marginally is is the operating word because they're still whipping laborers they only provide minimal food rations and they use child labor and we get this maybe in one sentence as we're reading along but they don't just treat other people simply as bodies to benefit their own lives. They literally use the bodies of others ritually in horrific ways to benefit their bodies. They keep these children locked up, often either people who are poor and forgotten or detained people that they've received from friends in the military of the dictatorship. But the dictatorship and politics are at the margins of their own minds and of their point of view, um, they do justify themselves when they say that, well, these people would be dying anyways. But I'm not sure that's really that important to them to justify themselves because there's one quote by one of the women, Mercedes, who's very high in the order. and She says, or she's described this way, she considered amorality to be a mark of class the further she got from moral convention, she thought, the more apparent her inborn superiority became. But I guess I, I, I'm saying all this because I think this harvesting of living bodies to try to extend the life of their own bodies, it doesn't feel very far from what the rich do in the normal world, um, that there's a very strong parallel, or at least it invites an allegorical reading, the ways in which people in the world are treated only as bodies 
and those bodies are used to extend the lives of other bodies. I wondered what your relationship to allegory was. Do you, do you invite this sort of reading for me to make this connection? Not a connection necessarily that the order is making themselves, but as a reader, is allegory part of what you, you consider yourself doing with this somewhat or very vampiric cult of the rich? In some ways, yeah. But in other ways, it's very realistic. For example, the, the conditions of the workers today, Alea, today, the, every month, police goes up there and they release people that are working in these fields as slaves and they still have child labor and they hardly pay. Uh, they give, you know, food and a house maybe, but not much more. And this is, and, and I think that is kind of important. They Most of the time, uh, they help local politicians to get these people to go and vote for them. These people sometimes are not uh, illiterate. So that is in passing because that is something that happens in, in real life. And to them, to the mentality of the order, this is the status quo. This is the order of things. This is what the bodies of the vulnerable and the, uh, and the people that are not like them are to be used for, you know? Like it, it's it's nothing. So of course there is the allegorical reading, but in a way I wanted to treat it with these details in the margins, in a bit like a like a journalist would with the little details of of color, because these little details of color sometimes is data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's the truth of of, of what's going on. Even them not getting caught is kind of real. If you think like the big, rich gangster kind of families or organizations in, in, in Latin America, they are never caught or hardly. And there is a sense of impunity they have. Of course, in, in the case of Mercedes and many of the high members of the order, there is this idea of the aristocracy of evil. They are princes of hell. And being the, you know, this and this aristocracy of evil, they can have the weakness of the bourgeois. I mean, the, the weakness of morals, the weakness of doing good or doing bad. She just justifies herself in the sense of, uh, you know, being very casual about it. It was like, okay, we're going to be killed anyway, so bring me more. Yeah, it's more in that sense that she says it. That in in a sense of trying to say, oh, oh no, I'm killing people that are innocent. She doesn't care. She just needs them to feed uh, her god, and that's the, you know, in in a way that's what the rich are doing. They're feeding their god. That is a not only money, just not that. It's a way of living. Well, in some interviews, you mention readers who've said to you that what you write is too much or goes too far mm. or is intolerable to read or unendurable. And you answer by saying that it isn't more intolerable than, than the things that are happening in their own lives that they choose to ignore or choose not to see every day. I wanted to share my experience as a reader 
of the book and which parts were harder to read and, and my theories on why. But first, I wanted to give an example from the book of the horror. And I'm going to choose one that's not really a spoiler. It's from a book that Gaspar, the main child in the book, and his friends come across, a book of Chilean and Argentinian legends and myths. It's about a cult that meets deep in a forest in a secret underground cave. And to join the cult, you have to kill your best friend, skin them, and make a vest out of their skin that shines white in the moonlight and the darkness. And the cave is guarded by an imbunche, which is a kidnapped baby. And it's interesting that a lot of the myths end up with these stolen children, which obviously connects us to the dictatorship. But the cave is guarded by an imbunche, which is a kidnapped baby, kidnapped by the witches or the warlocks, who slowly over time, step by step, twist its head so that it's looking back down its own spine and whose limbs are all twisted and the baby's back is opened up so that when they break one of its legs, they can place the foot inside of its own back and sew it back up so that the foot is inside of itself. And the Mbunche then walks on two hands and one leg. And I looked this up like I did a lot of the folklore and, <laughs> and it's real. And in fact, yeah. and in fact, one of the last or maybe the last witch trial in the world in the late 19th century happened on this southern Chilean island where the male witches testified to all of this. They talk about a magic cream that they would put on the imbunche to make it hairy. They would fork its tongue at three months old, sharpen its teeth, and then during its early months, it would only be fed black cat's milk and goat flesh. And then later, when it was old enough, corpses from the cemetery. Yeah. So this is all amazingly bone chilling. And it's similar and I think grotesqueness to the rituals that you invent in the order. So I just wanted to read that. It's a very minor part of the book in terms of uh, focus. But the parts of the book that were most hard for me to read had to do with point of view. When we're inside of the mind of people who are deeply complicit in perpetuating horror, which we are for a significant section of the book, we're deep inside of a cosmology. Maybe this relates to when you talk about beloved and the stealing of subjectivity. Um, mm. when, when we're with the kids or later when we're with the journalist, I can be disgusted and scared, and I, but I somehow I'm still able to breathe. Yeah. But when I'm inside the minds of the people who belong to the order, who don't try to free the locked up deformed children or put them out of their misery, that's when it's really hard because I wonder if my subjectivity has been stolen. Like I don't know where to put my foot on the ground because the only place I can place it is a place that's participating in the horror itself. So I, I guess I was curious about the desire to tell the darkness from the point of view of the darkness at certain points, um, because you do shift point of view. We get different angles into this world. Talk to us about this notion of point of view and sometimes telling the story from inside. Yeah, to me, weirdly, the one of the parts that I most enjoyed writing is the point of view of the doctor. Hmm. 
that is probably the more uh, pornographic and uh, more disturbing part. It's very short. You can't really keep that for 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 a long time. But that is really inside of the mind because I wanted to to show the, the readers and me too how do they think, how they think, how what is the body of this boy to him is something very functional, very erotic, very disposable. And he's a bigot. And he's uh, absolutely, he despises poor people. He's fascinated by death in a way that is like fascism is fascinated by death. I was thinking about, for example, in Spain, the Viva la Muerte, the militaries with Franco would say in Viva la Muerte, that is like a long life death. It's like very, very, well, <laughs> I don't know. I was absolutely like, what well, this is true horror. And yeah, I want, or I wanted in, in that novel in particular to, for the narrators to be from inside the darkness and from inside the mind of, of these people. Because I think, there's many points of view. So only give you, only give the reader and myself too. The, the point of the, the safe points of view is not honest. Because this is a dark cosmology. This is very, this is a, 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 a novel that deals with evil. So if I'm not going to deal with evil from the inside, not just describing it or not just telling what it does to the supposedly good people because nobody is totally good in, in, in the novel. Everybody is very uh, dual and I, I wanted that too. But once I managed to get inside their minds and especially the idea they have of love, for them, love is something that in this cosmology, in this uh, world, it it's a waste. You have to give up your children. You have to give up your emotion. You have you, you can't have anything that kind of reflects you to other human beings because that is a burden. Love is a burden. Yeah. Love is stupid in this in, in, in this world. And to have them have this kind of uh, mentality and have this kind of philosophy to me it was very dishonest to know don't go to the mind of them and to understand that maybe it was difficult for them to like for Florence it's difficult to give up her boy but she does and she does because it's her her duty her her duty as a as a wizard and her duty as a as a person of this class that kind of they are the aristocracy of evil as uh, as I said so love is not something that can be passion but not not real love so uh, once I got in that mentality, it was like role playing. It was very funny, fun to me to to do it. Funny, I said, just kind of. But yeah, I read. I I had a lot of laughs too doing it. But yeah, it was kind of uh, role playing, and it was kind of trying to to be honest because I get really upset sometimes when a narrative is all the time trying to being the safe side and being careful and trying to not to say okay I'm I'm the writer okay but I'm a nice person really and uh, and that and and that really disturbs me it's like 
uh, to me, it's a step back. I, I remember when I was really young, I read Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates. And I was like, what is this? Wow. I was fascinated. But not only by the book, but of the courage of this woman. It's a woman inside the mind of a man and inside of the mind of a serial killer. And she does it with such glee. <laughs> it's so it's such a, you know, it's such a ride. It's such she's having so much fun doing this. This is fiction. We are free here and we are free to explore. And if you're going to dismiss in fiction because we're too scared of being the bad people in the movie if we're going to dismiss the bad thoughts i think that's a problem that, that that's a really huge problem because i'm really interested in how evil if you want to call it evil i'm really interested in how evil functions i want to know I don't want to be protected from it i wasn't protected from it yeah that's one that that's one thing I see how it's unleashed and I, I see what it does and I'm not scared of it. And I'm not, I'm more scared of the silence around it. I think maybe you've answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it in case that's not true. When I, when I talked to Fernanda Melchor for the show, mm. we talked about how she felt like there was something almost carnivalesque about the violence in Mexico the way the dismemberments and beheadings were happening in, in her region on the Gulf Coast. And we talked about a, a Gulf Coast cartel, Los Zetas, who would barbecue their victims or scalp them alive and then make these phone videos of these human spit roasts called Mexigore. And I brought up the, the New York Times review by Julian Lucas of her book, Hurricane Season, where he compares hurricane season to both Flannery O'Connor and Marlon James. And the critic brings up a philosophy of Marlon James, which then I brought up. Well, I brought the philosophy up with James himself when he was on the show, but I also brought it up with Melchor. The idea that sometimes one needs to risk pornography in the portrayal of violence. And the New York Times critic thinks Melchor risks it when he says... At times, she enters so deeply into the psyche of sexual violence that she skirts the voyeurism risked by any representation of cruelty. In his posthumously published novel 2666, Roberto Bolaño deployed a device of alienating repetition to narrate the murders of women in Mexico clinically detailing so many cases that they begin to lose their tabloid charge. By contrast, hurricane season is saturated with the language of abuse. Men ecstatically molesting their daughters, boys boasting about how exactly they'll rape a friend. By design, Melchor offers little vantage beyond this world of predators. The crime is not an act but an entire atmosphere, which Melchor captures in language as though distilling venom. I brought this up with Fernanda because on the one hand, I feel like her impulse to write the book was to critique femicides and gendered violence. But within the book, there's no overt voice of critique. There's no distance from the violence. Um, we disappear into the violence. I guess it feels similar to me 
for sections of your book, when we're inside the order and inside the mind of the order, that I, I know that you're against the order, but I also feel like in the book I'm in an, I'm, sometimes I'm in an amoral space. And I think that you've already spoken to this, but does this provoke any more thoughts for you about it? I think the order has a point. I'm, I, I don't agree with them, but I think they have a point. I think if I were in their place and if I was raised in that, that's why I put a character like Rosario that is more or less not my contemporary, but but more or less. Maybe I would try to make it more, um, I don't know, more with the times, let's say. But I would like to live forever and step on the heads of people too. Not me, Mariana, the writer or, or the person. But when I'm talking about this very dense, and this is still similar to hurricane season, I think she's much better than me, but anyway, there's a density to the violence and to what is done with the bodies and to the glee uh, or to indifference that done with the bodies. That has to come from a point of view of understanding that this violence has a point. Of course, Fernanda doesn't agree with the violence of the cartels, but she understands why they're doing it. She understands why there's people moving from the military to the cartels. She understands why there's young people going to be in sicarios or to sell drugs other than to work in a McDonald's. She understands the mechanisms of this. I wouldn't have done the order the way I did it if I didn't do before the biography of Silvino Campo. Silvino Campo was the wife of Bioy Casares and the best friend of Borges, and she was from a very, very rich family, an aristocratic family. And I had to go to her houses, interview her friends, and there was a sense of superiority from, from them that sometimes even when I went into their mansions and into their houses, I thought, Okay, if I disappear here, nobody will come after these people. Nobody, they, my family will look for me in the streets and, you know, making demonstrations and stuff. But these people will be like, we will never touch her. And they will be. <laughs> I wish people and could see your be... expression that you just made. <laughs> <laughs> and I completely felt like that in the smallest details. Like, for example, I remember. <laughs> interviewing this beautiful woman that had like a very big black piano in her house. This is in the morning. She lived next to the Vatican embassy. We'll never forget. And she, and the service was out for some reason. I don't know if she couldn't pay them that day or it was a holiday. I can't remember. But she didn't have anybody. And she didn't know how to make a tea or a coffee or anything. So... There was one woman from the service, but she was a cleaner, I think. And she made a coffee just for her, not for me. Because I was nada, nothing to her. Wow. And uh, in that single thing, that single detail in that absolutely beautiful house next to the you know, Vatican embassy that was obviously complicit with the dictatorship and everything, I felt 
their power and my complete vulnerability to them. And in interviewing them, in talking to them, I, I kind of uh, understood where they were coming from. They're owners. They were always owners. They were owners of land. They were owners of the country. They were owners of people. They were all owners of palaces. It's old money that is gone, but they were that. And they keep that kind of superiority to you that is very, very, very obvious. And you feel it and you feel like a cockroach. Wow. <laughs> and... Uh, and that was something that I really wanted to explore. How does it feel to be in that kind of spirit? I, I thought about the order before us kind of more in the fringes kind of thing. Maybe, uh, you know, even bohemians or, or kind of, you know, alternative uh, the, that that kind of space, like alternative religions and you know uh, spiritualities and things like that. And when I met these people, I said, "No, these are the people that are the sect." And uh, in Fernanda, for example, I find another influence, another influence from the U.S. that to me is very clear. That is Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. There is the constant, relentless use of language as violence. The language is violent in all that book and in all the hurricane season. It's relentless. And um, with the change of point of view, I decided not to do that. I decided to let you breathe. Hurricane season doesn't let you breathe. And uh, Blood Meridian doesn't let you breathe. They're shorter, though. Yeah. They're yeah. shorter. Like, I'm glad you let us breathe. In, yes. the, in the middle of your book, I was like, thank you, Mariana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you, you've talked about how politics and horror are, are usually found together, that the horror genre is political by nature. Yeah. And it reminds me of your conversation with Stephen Graham Jones, where he said that slasher narratives are worlds of fairness. There are harsh worlds where justice is delivered. And we, we particularly crave these slasher stories when we live in a world that doesn't seem that doesn't seem fair. And recently when I revisited some horror films from my childhood, like Poltergeist, which I hadn't seen in 30 years, as an adult, you really see how political the film is. It starts with the national anthem. Yeah. And then you see the father reading a book on Ronald Reagan. And it's this upper middle class family living in these ever expanding generic wealthy suburbs, which are haunted because the development companies are quietly building them over cemeteries to save money Mm. from greed. So they're moving the headstones, but they're not actually moving the bodies and they're lying to everybody. And that was also true when I watched Dead Zone. It's like extremely political. Um, Yes. And when I think of the horror genre historically, in the past at least, it seems unusually dominated by men, both on the screen and in books. But when I think of the horror genre now, I think of Kelly Link, I think of Helen Oyeyemi, but in in Latin American horror in particular, I think mostly of women. Hmm. Samantha Schweblin, Monica Ojeda, Fernanda Melchor, even Christina Rivera Garza, who who's mostly engaging with it now in her nonfiction, yeah. And you you yourself have written about how your transition from writing 
realistic fiction to fantastical fiction, it coincides with your own learning how to write female characters. That your first supernatural story and your first female protagonists happened at the same time. And I guess I was hoping maybe you could speak both about your own journey around that, but also any thoughts that you have about what seems like a very robust Latin American generation of horror written by women. Well, my own experience was that I wanted to write women. And at one point in my, you know, I decided, well, I want to write women. And I sat and tried to write a woman and it was awful. It was not a character. It was just me talking like me and speaking like me, sorry. And um, there was no depth. There was no, I thought that because I, I identified myself as a woman, that was it. I didn't have to create a, a, a literary voice for a woman. And then I understood that I had to. So I had to look back, not to uh, female authors, because that's one thing, but to female narrators. doesn't matter if they were written by a man or a woman. I didn't care about that. But how is a woman, how is the voice of a woman in, in literature? And of course, what happens, and what happens is, is that you read Patricia Highsmith and the narrators are men in most of the stories, and and it's, uh, you read Iris Murdoch and that happens. In Latin American uh, literature, though, it's different. You have Clarice Lispector, and Clarice Lispector, they're mostly women. Mm-hmm. You have Silvino Campo, and they're mostly women. There is a huge part of... Uh, literature that was very, very, very popular in the in the seventies and eighties here. That I think it it became associated with a dictatorship that is kind of silly, but there were bestseller women that were selling like eighty thousand books or a hundred thousand books and and things like that, and they all had female narrators. And this was the popular literature of the time. The the one that were was a uh, you know sold at supermarkets and stuff like that. There were four of them. So that's something. This uh, Elena Garro in, in Mexico, there's less women writers maybe than in other places, but they all wrote as women. Even one, Bernardo Esquinca recently and many others kind of brought back to light a, a horror writer from Mexico, Amparo Davila, is amazing. She only wrote short stories, and all the short stories are with women narrators of 80, 90% of them, and all of them are about female, uh, you know, the female body and the female fears. So I started looking to uh, female narrators. I found a lot of female authors and narrators in Latin America, and then when I went back, I found many women in the Gothic and the ghost story, from Mary Shelley to all the women that wrote with uh, Edith Wharton. I mean, there's many. And uh, I think the ghost, the superstition, the house, the intimacy, the horrors that they couldn't express, the fear of not having your house, the fear of your children taking from you, the fear of dying at birth. Those, all those things are in the Gothic that they were writing. That 
has a, like a very tenuous but still visible line to Shirley Jackson. And uh, somehow it dropped in, in Latin America to these stories, like Amparo Davila writes a story about a woman that has an abortion and that she and then she has a tomato plantation in her house and the tomatoes start running after her. Like this is insane. But and at the time nobody thought that this was completely insane, but people didn't know how to read it. So she was ignored and that's it. And I think in Latin America what happens is that the weird and the uncanny this was always the territory of the the literature for women because it was not the canon literature it was like do what you want so the women were listening to what um if they were upper class women they were listening to what the women in the service would say that's a very good example in Silvino Campo that she reproduces these voices and this kind of uh, beliefs sometimes, or the complete otherness that appears in Clarice Lispector, that she's not only a woman that, that writes very strange literature, but she's a, uh, an immigrant from, from Russia in Brazil that is not that common. So I think, in a way, it's a, it's a tradition, and it's also a generational as the boys, we watch Twin Peaks, we watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, that is much more of a female horror movie than a male horror movie. I mean, there's the constant menace of rape from Freddy. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the, I mean, I remember the scene when she's in, when she's in the in the bath, and the hand comes between her legs. Mm-hmm. This is impossible to do anymore in a, in a movie now. I think. And that that really scared me. I was in the cinema. I was really young. I was, I think, 13 or 14. And I ran away from home or something to watch it. And uh, this is the early 90s, late 80s. You could do anything. It was better. I remember watching that, like, in the corner. I was totally scared because I was totally scared that that could, that could happen to me. And um, we all read Stephen King, The Girls and the Boys. We all we all watched uh, Twin Peaks that, of course, starts with the murder of a girl. It's a dead girl. So there's something that is intrinsically, and of course, all the screen queens, horror is very female. And I think uh, feminism and uh, the... The, the, the force that feminism has in Latin America that is very new. Imagine we have abortion in Argentina since two years ago only. For example, Chile doesn't have it. Brazil doesn't have it. So all this and the, you know, the conscience of women about these issues and, and stuff mixed with the portrait of our fears in this genre is what somehow I think made some synergy that has to do with a generational thing of all these women that were, we were born to feminism at the same time that we were born to massive horror fiction. Massive, I mean, in, in very in very popular horror fiction and that horror fiction that is very, very intrinsically female. In, yeah. in in the victims, in the in the kind of spaces that it happens, the houses, the 
the, the kind of menace, the being followed, this kind of things. I, I, I remember one of the, la the latest ones I really like, It Follows, for example, that's an absolutely female film. Like um, the 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 stigma that follows you is the is sex is uh, the don't be joyful in sex. I don't know, and there's something yeah, there's something about that that is a uh, that I think made the uh, crash. Let me ask you a question about the joyfulness of sex in relationship to queerness in your book, um, like Fernanda's book where the gender of the witch and hurricane season becomes less clear the more you read. Yeah. And that book is swimming in a culture of homophobia and transphobia. Queerness is a big part of your book. Most of the sex in it is between men. The order aspires toward both what they consider sort of a magical androgynousness and a bisexuality. And I, as you've already mentioned, you wrote a queer relationship 25 years ago. And I'm thinking about how much, as you've already alluded to, how much has changed in those 25 years in Argentina. So abortion 25 years ago was illegal. Yeah. Same-sex marriage was illegal. They're both now legal. Argentina, the first Latin American country to legalize same-sex marriage. Argentina has a gender identity law protecting trans people's right to be recognized by their stated gender. I wonder if the toxic relationship in your first novel, hmm. and by contrast, the sex in the latest novel, I, I wonder if that somehow is is uh, related to this shift in the culture also, because you, we talked about breathing in the book, and there are points in the book where you allow us to breathe when we're not in the order. But the only time, the only time when we can breathe when we're in the order is when the men are having sex. It's like yeah. they're they're the, that's a moment of joy. I don't think it is in your first book, but in no. this in this book, it's a moment that's not about death and fear. It's like a moment that is really about love. I'm not, or maybe not love, desire. Let's say, um, yeah. and connection and touch. There's no body horror really in the sex scenes. No. Um, and I'm curious about that. If thinking about this, this quarter century time between these two queer novels, if you had any thoughts. No, I think, I think it has a, a lot to do with that. Maybe not with my experience in, in particular, because my experience of, of, of sex being a teenager, I mean, the, the age that the, the young people in the order, I was terrifying. It was eight. It was, if I get pregnant, how I get an abortion. Obviously, we were having sex like 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 crazy because we were teenagers. But it was the fear of death and the threat all, all the time mixed. That's why we go back to Freddy and all that kind of things. Like it was it, it felt really close. But now I myself, even when I can't really, you know, use these things with my body because you know I can't. Is I never wanted children anyway, but even if I want, it's not. I I I can't physically have it anymore. I and and things like that. But the atmosphere is completely different. I'm not scared anymore of uh, going in the street with a with a couple, 
of, of, of friends of mine that are holding hands in case they throw something in their heads because that, that doesn't happen anymore. And if it happens, that person that does it is a crazy person that is going to be attacked. I mean, and I wanted to put that in, in, in the book, the sense of freedom and, and the sense of, of, of joy. And also the sense of, as a writer, I think is um, the the writer has to be in order to be with all these points of view, has to be a bit of a has to have a bit of androgyny, because he has to understand desire. And to me, desire is the opposite of death, not love, because wanting is what keeps you alive. I I wanted to to reflect that a lot in the first novel. It was all dark. And in this one, there is a lot of dark, but those are moments of uh, pleasure. And also the bodies are bodies in the novel that are so punished and they suffer so much that I really wanted those bodies to have that recognition between each other, that moment of, you know, of, of physically being in, in a place of pleasure, basically. And uh, I had a lot of uh, bad reviews about the sex they they. But that's very easy, I think, to say always that sex is bad written. What is good written sex? You have to write about sex because it's the same as we don't have to have fear of writing about sex. We we kind of do it a lot. Even if we don't have a partner, we do it a lot. <laughs> like, uh, you know, and, uh, and yes, and our bodies are, you know, machines of of pain and pleasure at the same time. So you you, you have to do it. And uh, I really enjoy doing it. There's also not that much uh, investigation that you have to do. There's a couple of questions maybe you have to ask. I wanted to at least briefly hear about your interest in Ursula K. Le Guin, a writer who herself had to learn how to write female protagonists too. And it's someone I know you've written about several times as a journalist. Um, and it, and she was a writer who herself was very interested in Argentina, mm-hmm. collaborating collaborating with and translating Argentinian poets, translating the fantastical book Calpa Imperial, yeah, and, and more. Um, the final conversation I did for the Le Guin series that I've been doing was with Neil Gaiman on the fantastic and the real. And that was a topic that I reached out to you about possibly doing for the series maybe a year ago, and, and the timing was bad. But this intersection of the imagined and the real, as I think people already realize hearing us talk, is, is central to your work, and it's central to Le Guin's. And it was really fun to discover that the second chapter in your novel is titled The Left Hand, Dr. Bradford Enters the Darkness. And there's actually a line in it that has the line, left hand of darkness in the chapter, which is not referring, uh, it's it's not referring to the Le Guin directly, but it feels like a nod. Obviously, she wasn't a horror writer or a terror writer or a gross out writer. But I know Stephen King and Stephen Graham Jones and Samantha Schweblin and other horror writers um, nevertheless have felt inspired by her. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts you wanted to share. It was it was a fun little thing to trip upon, the left hand of darkness inside of the book. Yeah, I wanted to put a nod uh, to her because it's also the left hand path, no? It's uh, the 
darkest part of magic, of the practice of, of magic. But I wanted to put a nod uh, to her because of the androgyny in that mo- in that book. I remember reading that book. I read it very young, and I was amazed at the at the endless possibilities and how easy she made it seem. Then I read a lot about it and how she was, uh, how it was very difficult to reach that. But when you read it, it seems very easy. And I think that has to do a lot with the fact that she comes from a family of anthropologists. And anthropology is intrinsically linked to politics. I mean, you can't think about anthropology and the other and the otherness and the study of the other if you don't think about politics and how politics somehow put them in there. So all her fiction is very, very political. I guess even 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 the the Wizard series is is very in in a way I don't know if political is the word but yeah maybe the tombs the tombs of Atuan for example that it's a reflection on on power and then the last one also when she uh, like leaves everything behind and decides to take care of this burned girl obviously there's burned women in my in my stories she is not at all a horror writer, but she uses a lot of imaginary that has to do, and a lot of ideas that have to do with power and that sometimes are very, very cruel. And The Dispossessed, for example, is a very kind of cruel novel. Not in the language, not, she was very gentle uh, as a person, and I think she was very gentle as a writer, but her ideas are not, her ideas are of a mind that is very sharp. And uh, and I think that is what many of the people that enjoy writing horror can get from her, the edge. Like she, in a very gentle way, gets you very, very far. And um, yeah, I think that her thinking about power, it's a... And in the late years, I think of capitalism is very interesting, and also the way he thought about power in the in the much and the smaller world of literature, and how she was a very strong advocate of the minor genres like sci-fi and horror and you know fantasy and, and stuff, and thinking it about the how the powerful ones were the others that were keeping this on, on the fringes were, you know, you think about it and you think that Ray Bradbury didn't, didn't won one award and it's mind-blowing. Well, as we come near to an end, I wanted to return to place again. I wanted to ask about the mythologies you draw upon in relation to Argentinian indigenous cultures. I, I loved looking up things as I read, not just the Mbunche, which I couldn't believe it was real down to so many of those morbid details, but San La Muerte to El Duende, and just to discover that these stories and supernatural beings largely came from the region where the book takes place. Within the first pages of the book, we get the indigenous Guarani story of Queen Anahi, who, when burned at the stake, attached to a tree, accused of being a witch. Her body is not found the next day, but rather a saba tree full of red flowers. And our protagonist child, 
Gaspar asks his father what the difference is between a legend and history and asks whether the story actually happened. And his father answers yes and no. I, I wanted to know how you see these indigenous stories from the region functioning. You've talked elsewhere about how Argentina as a whole has a self-conception as white and European and has looked toward Europe. And I wondered if this was a way, again, like we discussed earlier today, for the story to feel like it's emerging from Argentina, from the setting. Maybe this goes back to psychogeography with the stories that have been spoken in the space that the story is happening in. Yeah, all the legends and all the pagan saints they are from that region because I know them and my family knows them. And these were the stories that were that they told me when I was little. It was like my fairy, my fairy tales. Some of them are obviously very syncretized with uh, already with European mythology. Like the 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 duendes are like fairies. They're a bit more, I don't know, they're a bit gross, but it still has some elements of that and and san la muerte has the it has two representations really one is a very western one with the with the cape and you know a skeleton and the other one that i think is more uh like older one let's say it's a skeleton sitting and it's called lord of patience because mm. it can wait for you as death does but I think it's all an ancestor's cult. It's a cult of bones and the cult of, of the ancestors that some priests probably came and said, okay, let's make it like this. All these stories are very in the conversation of the everyday. Like people get tattoos of San La Muerte. You go down in Buenos Aires and you're going to be to see altars of Gauchito Hill. There's a a gaucho that was murdered, like he's, he was beheaded, and um, he's miraculous. And there's altars everywhere in the city, like three blocks from my house. And all these uh, these stories and these myths are, are, are in the everyday conversations, like the ghost stories people tell, like, I saw this, I saw that. I mean, the, that legend of the Guarani princess, is that's the national flower. That's Argentina's national flower. So you learn it at school. And when you are six or seven, and the first thing they tell you is this woman that was burned, and then it became a red flower. So it's not that it's uh, it's not in the margins, it's, it's not buried. It's absolutely alive. The only thing that it's it wasn't was in literature. And uh, it was, I mean, there, there, there is, I'm not the only one that does it, but I, I use it in the horror genre and that kind of gives it back, I think, to all this mythology, the mystery that is needed and, and, and also puts it in, putting it in, in a minor genre is kind of saying, this is something you dismissed and, uh, and it's a shame that, that you did that. I'm not sure that you mentioned in the book itself that that was the national flower or whether I discovered it on my own in doing research, but I was so amazed that that was the national flower of Argentina. And yeah. it, it made me think of your essay about Argentina's relationship to beef, to asado, <laughs> called The Art and Horror of Argentine Asado. 
that perhaps like this national flower, a national flower that comes from a burned queen accused of being a witch, hmm. that this food, this this national food, has a strange, complex presence in the country. You you talk about how one of the earliest Argentinian short stories, a 19th century story called El Matadero, or The Slaughter Yard, it's a story that takes on the brutality of the president at the time. And you say that the asado and political violence are much like they are in this story. They're very linked today in Argentina, that during the dictatorship where your book is set, the torture table was called La Paria, or the grill. And the grill was the place interrogators would lay out prisoners, pour water over them, and then apply an electric prod. And you also talk about how one of your first jobs as a journalist, a job that shows up very briefly in the book, and I thought that was really fun that you put that <laughs> in, you put that in the life of one of your characters. But one of your first jobs as a journalist was being sent into a really poor part of the city where a truck full of cows had been overturned, and many were dead, but the people there were butchering and grilling some of them. Yeah. And you say, quote, when we arrived... The police were there, and the truck driver who was crying, and the street, the only paved one in the area, was covered in cow's blood and feces. The smell was unbearable. The blood that flowed down the gently sloping road, the furious midday sun, the abandoned cow heads with their staring eyes, it was biblical. From the villa along the road wafted the delicious smell of cooking meat. The blue sky was painted with smoke, and I could hear children laughing. And then later, about the photo that results for the newspaper, you say, I remember that the photo, in black and white, didn't in any way convey that red, blue, and gray afternoon, nor did it transmit in the slightest the barbarity, the joy, the death, the smell of blood and shit, the shaken air in the moments after the upset, the knives sinking into hide, the crunch of ribs, the moribund moos of the besieged animals. When I think of this, and I think about how you've said that when you write short stories, the path is often clear for you as you go. But when you write a novel, there's a sense of getting lost. Yeah. And how you how you must have been lost for a long time deep in the barbarity and the smell of blood and the shaken air of this world that you dreamed up for us for 700 pages. It made me <laughs> wonder what desires the writing of the book and the finishing of the book of the book created in you that back in 2019 when you published this in Spanish you emerge back outside of the catacombs of your book. And I wonder where that left you, what you produced since because of writing that book and, and surviving and surviving it. I imagine <laughs> you surviving it. Um, maybe you just loved doing it the whole time, but I also imagine you surviving it. But what, 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 it, what have you written since or what can we expect from you since that is somehow a response to having written this? It is a response because... It was full of purpose, that novel. I wanted a long novel. I wanted a novel that was like that, with a lot of voices. I want a novel with a protagonist like that. I wanted a novel 
about uh, the body, about disease, about power. I wanted that. I was lost, of course, and I didn't know the ending. All the usual things that happened in the novel, but it was very poor. It was full of purpose. It wasn't, you know, just let's be free and all these ideas. No, uh, because I also wanted the experience of a long novel that is very obsessive and being very immersed in it. What happened? When I finished this novel, I finished it. I sent it to the prize to the Heralde Prize, and I went to England to follow my favorite band, Suede. So I want, it was like, a, this is my getting out of this world by being a fan of a band screaming and going on stage and you yeah. know, following them in on, in trains with crazy girls. <laughs> the, the, other, the other were girls, I was like one of the oldest ones all over the country. I came back, I won the prize, and COVID came. So everything that happened to the novel, it's like it didn't happen to me. It happened to the novel. People were reading it. I wasn't aware of anything because I was, you know, cleaning the, the house with bleach and my phone with alcohol and, 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 <laughs> and having long debates on the phone with my mother about whether the mask or not. And, you know, and she was in a very tragic mode, like, let me die if I die, don't do something. But anyway, my mother is, is she deserves an over. So a year goes by. And then there's the whole problem of the inequality of the vaccines, and we didn't have the vaccines. So there's this myth that we had the longest quarantine in the world. But the thing is that we couldn't go out because we didn't have anything to protect us because uh, we didn't have the vaccines. We had to buy vaccines from China and Russia. And people were telling me all the time, this really sounds like a novel of yours. And I was like, no, it doesn't. This is absolute zero reality to me. This is nothing like what I do. What I do is getting lost in this world. This is not getting lost in anything. This is millimeter by millimeter taking care of myself so I don't get sick. And we don't know what it is and this can be worse and I don't want to die now. This was very urgent and very unliterate to me. I didn't know what to say. So I spent a year in silence. And like in a dark room, I couldn't find the light to write anything or to say anything. The first thing that happened was I have a friend, an Argentinian friend that lives in Mexico for, he has been living there for 25 years. He's a very good friend of Bernardo Skinka. He's an illustrator, he's an illustrator. And he always shows me stuff. So he started showing me some stuff that he did. He was sick. He recovered more or less quickly, but he spent a lot of time in the house. And he started showing me the work that he was doing. And it was absolutely different. Our imagination is completely different. He's much more into other things. But at one point, he realized that all the illustrations had kind of some kin to them like some kinship to them and he was like would you mind to would you like to write some i don't know some epigraph short little story to them whatever you want and it was very useful to me to put my writing and my imagination at the service of something that was in me mm -hmm. that was the images of other person that was this, in a way 
the story about the person and it ended being a book that's called The Year of the Rat because in, in the Chinese horoscope, 2020 is the year of the rat. I think that opened the door that I kind of lost because reality became too real for me. That is something that I'm really not comfortable with. So I started writing again. And I'm writing again a novel about ghosts because also these past years have been very ghostly to me. People disappear uh, in another ways, uh, like from your life, for example. People that you don't see anymore, or you only see like that. that well, this is was now we are doing this, and it's totally normal to me because the last year was very normal. But it became very phantasmagoric. I didn't know who it was on the other side ever. So I started, I think the new novel I'm writing is much more gentle, but it's much more uh, uncanny in a way, more sinister, more subtle. I don't want the the impact anymore. I I I, I want little bit, I, I'm saying this to you and then you will read it and it will be like, a, you know, a massacre. But to me, <laughs> <laughs> to me, in my parameters, it's a very, it's, my, it's, it's a, a gentle much more massacre. Gentle. Yeah, it's yeah. A much more gentle. But at the same time, I started again with a, with short stories, and the short stories are full on body horror, like amazing. Like I just I finished uh, before this is like I don't know if I even even should say this, but it doesn't matter. I just finished a, a short story about a woman that has an hysterectomy and. Uh, she sees a picture of her womb and the things inside her womb. And he says, why should I give this to, you know, the garbage of, of the hospital? I want it with me. So she goes <laughs> and it's a totally body horror story of this woman reclaiming this part of her that they were taking from her. And she's going from, you know, tattoo artists to, um, you know, different kind of doctors to see how they can put it not back in her because she doesn't want it back, but in some place of the body that, you know, it was some kind of cool body modification. And all they are all coming like that. And I think this is because of the of the two years that we have been talking about vaccines, ventilators, pneumonia, you know, people uh, sick behind brick walls and not being able to go you know children going insane because they can't go to 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 take a walk the fight about can i get the russian vaccine or is dirty and i'm going to die of it and you know all these all these kinds of things are coming back in short stories because they can't come back in a novel and in short stories that are absolutely disgusting. So I'm, I'm becoming like, yeah, I'm becoming like Eric LaRocca or something like that. So a gentle novel I, and disgusting short stories. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm up to, I think. And am I right that I saw that your novel, the new novel, is being adapted? Oh, Share of Night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they are, um, I don't know at, at what point they are, because everything in with the... TV and, and stuff is so slow, and uh, but yeah, they are wow. they are doing it. I don't know how much I'm allowed to to say about it. Well, I hope but yeah, I, think, I hope it's David Cronenberg. 
Oh no, it's not. But it's, <laughs> no, if it was, if it was David Cronenberg, I, I, I wouldn't be able to keep it a secret. I would say to you, yes. I'm dying. It's <laughs> yes. David Cronenberg or Brandon. Any of, yeah. I mean, uh, I love them both. Yeah, I love David more, of course. Yes, but, you know. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Mariana. No, thank you. It was it was very very nice. And then you made me think, which is kind of rare because at this point I just, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I just, <laughs> I just, I just throw, oh, the, the, the novel is from 2009, uh, uh, 2019. So, yeah. and we are in 22. I know. So it's kind of uh, far away from me. And I have like certain things that I, it's not repeating myself and, and trying to be, you know, uh, like a bad interviewee but the thing is that sometimes you forget about it they, they ask you things and it's like what i wrote that but this was very nice because it made me think about it again and how serious it, it, it was to write it yeah well it was a pleasure we were talking today to mariana enriquez about her latest novel her first in english our share of night you've been listening to between the covers i'm david Naiman, your host Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Mariana Enriquez, don't miss the past one with Mexican writer Fernanda Melchor, which is also about questions of horror and the fantastic in relation to place and in relation to gender. It's a great compliment to today's episode. For the bonus audio archive, we are adding a long-form conversation with Mariana's translator, Megan McDowell. This joins long-form conversations with Melchor's translator, Sophie Hughes, Ocampo's translator, Suzanne Jill Levine, and a first conversation with Megan McDowell about translating Alejandro Zambra. There are also readings and craft talks from many past guests, from Marlon James to Christina Rivera Garza to Ted Chang. These generous contributions join collectibles from everyone from Ursula K. Le Guin to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to getting a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. And every listener supporter receives the supplemental resources with each conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>